Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 11, please. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible home with you. Consider it a gift. We will read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying that colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus, the son of David, the king of kings, has mounted his young donkey. That's what a colt is. It could be a young horse or a young donkey. In this case, it's a young donkey. He's mounted his young donkey and he's riding into the city of Jerusalem. The entire city isn't present for this gathering, but a large number of people are present. The people have gathered palm branches from the field and they're throwing them on the ground in front of Jesus along with their cloaks. This is the ancient Near Eastern version of rolling out the red carpet for the king. The palm leaves are powerful images in and of themselves, representing the Maccabean revolt where the Jews tried to throw off their Roman oppressors. These palm branches represent the people's hope that Jesus will be the one to finally rescue them from Rome that has been oppressing them for so long. The people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna! which roughly translates into, God, save us. The people are expectantly celebrating their liberator as Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps one of the most powerful details about this scene, and preachers love to take this and run with it, is the fact that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You have this mighty king riding into the city, being celebrated as a king, but he's riding on a donkey, a humble beast. Not on a war horse like you might expect a king to be riding on. This is such a powerful image. Jesus, both a lion and the lamb, mighty king, but also humble servant riding on a donkey. So powerful. Unfortunately, this image is almost entirely false. You see, it was quite common in these days for kings to ride donkeys. King David rode donkeys throughout Jerusalem. His son uh, Solomon 
rode a donkey into his coronation ceremony in the city of Jerusalem. Kings rode donkeys in times of peace and in the city. They only rode horses when it was time to go to war. So a person from the ancient world would not have read this account and thought, oh, wow, how weird, Jesus, the king, riding a donkey. No, they would have rather thought, the king is riding in on a king's beast. Sorry for the letdown. But don't worry, this morning's text is still full of powerful imagery and even a big crescendo. As a matter of fact, I think we're at the place in the book of Mark where this text is the crescendo. We're, we're creeping up to the climax of the text. I think you see this kind of thing in TV shows often. Thinking about Friends or The Office, Arrested Development. Anytime there's a romance involved, you know, whether it's Ross and Rachel or Jim and Pam, the tiniest bud of romance begins to blossom between two people in the life of the show. But then the writers tease it out over and over again, season after season, trying to keep you active and involved, and the tension is mounting and mounting and building and building until finally, they finally admit their feelings. And there's the climactic kiss. When you watch the show for the first time and you see the love interest begin to develop, you're thinking, oh, now, maybe now. Maybe now, maybe now they're going to do it. Maybe now they're going to get together. And then they don't. And you think, maybe now, and then it doesn't happen again. And the tension just grows and grows and grows until finally when they do kiss Ross and Rachel in the rain, you go, it's happening. You know, it's finally happening. Well, in a much more profound way, we should be thinking, it's happening as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem. As you've been paying attention to the book of Mark, yes, as you've been paying attention to the book of Mark, as we've been going through it together on Sunday mornings, you've seen that the book of Mark begins with John the Baptist preaching. And what he's preaching about is the coming of the kingdom of God. And then after John the Baptist is killed and Jesus goes through his temptation and he starts preaching, he starts preaching about the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom, the kingdom. And then as you watch the book of Mark, just over and over again, kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Well, if there's a kingdom, who's the king? All throughout the book of Mark, you see Jesus acting in a way that's quite contrary to how you might expect the king to act. Rather than receiving praise, he's, he's calling people to be silent about the things that he's doing and the things that he's teaching. He's taking the back routes whenever he travels to avoid the masses. He's serving others instead of demanding to be served. And then in chapter 8, as Jesus begins to move to Jerusalem, you start to think, okay, closer, closer, closer. The king is starting to move towards the king's city. And then here in chapter 11, it's finally happening. Jesus, the king, the son of David, is finally entering into the king's city, the city of David, Jerusalem. And he's here to take his rightful place on the throne. Although nobody could have imagined, even though Jesus tried to explain to them the path to the throne that Jesus will take. In this morning's account, we begin to see the king doing more of what kings do. He's beginning to act more like a king. He's receiving honor. For the first time in the book of Mark, Jesus is allowing himself to be praised. 
as people are throwing palm branches and their cloaks down on the ground beneath him and shouting cries of Hosanna and celebrating, he's allowing it to happen. He's not silencing people. He's also exercising his kingly rights. You know, the donkey that he rode into Jerusalem was commandeered from a civilian for his kingly purposes. Let's go back and look at verses 3 through 6. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said and they let them go. Jesus is saying, I'm the king, I'm the Lord. And if anybody asks why I'm taking this donkey, you let them know the king needs it. The Lord needs it. And then, after this, the, the king begins to survey his land, beginning with the most important part, the temple. Verse 11 says that he went into the temple and looked around and then went back to Bethany to rest because it was still late. Bethany was a city on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So Jesus has been traveling to Jerusalem. He's exhausted. He's tired. It's late. He gets there. But before he goes to the village to rest, he wants to go into the city and look around. And he wants to go into the most important part of the city, the heart of the city, the temple. And so he looks around. And in the short time that Jesus was in the temple, he saw all that he needed to see. The king knows after just a short while in the temple, that all is not well in the land because all is not well in the temple. I wonder how Jesus slept that night in Bethany after he saw the temple, went back, took a night to rest, knowing what he was going to do the next morning. I wonder how he slept. Let's read about that next day together in verses 12 through 19. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. So we've just read of two different things, two different accounts. One is Jesus' cursing of the fig tree, and the other is his cleansing of the temple. Now these two stories seem like they couldn't be any different. They don't seem like they have much in common. One is Jesus apparently acting like a petty god, cursing a tree out of spite because it doesn't give him what he wants. The other is of Jesus going into the temple and basically throwing down the gauntlet, kicking people out, overturning money tables, kicking people out and preaching and teaching. 
But these two stories are actually telling the same tale, just in a different way. Look, let's look at them a little bit closer. So you'll remember that Jesus looked at the temple late at night. And then he went back to Bethany to sleep. Now the next morning, when Jesus comes across the fig tree, he's on his way back to the temple. He's seen all that he needs to see, and he's going back to clear the temple. Now Mark notes that this fig tree that he passes by is, quote, in leaf. In leaf. This was actually a colloquial Semitic term. Basically, Jews would have understood it if they heard it. And it meant that the fig tree was out of season for figs, but it was during the time of year where there would have been green leaves. And it was also during the time of year where there would have been a little treat if you would have gone looking for a fig but found none. You would have found these little green nodules on the tree. I don't really understand all the science behind it. I'm not a botanist. But apparently there's a place in the development in the life of fig trees where figs are not in season, but there's green leaves. But not only are there green leaves, there are these little green nodules on the tree, like the beginning of a fig. And they would be delicious to pick at and to eat. Everyone knew them as these little treats that you could eat on a tree, even though the fig tree was out of season. If you lived in ancient Palestine, you would have grown up around fig trees your whole lives. You probably would have had a fig tree in your backyard, if you would have had a backyard. You would have eaten fig trees from along the road as you were traveling along it. You would have known about these little tiny green nibbly fruits that were readily available to you when the tree was in leaf. And so Jesus, as he's traveling down the road, as he's on his way back to the temple, he sees a tree that's in leaf. He knows it's not the season for figs, but he sees that the tree has green leaves, and he thinks, I'll go get a snack. I'm a little peckish. But he finds no fruits. Something is obviously wrong with this tree. Anyone of this time who's familiar with fig trees would have known it. Although it has leaves and appears to be healthy, the fact that these little green fruits aren't available on the tree means that there's something wrong with it. It means that this tree is diseased at the root. Such a tree appears to be healthy, but anybody who knows anything about fig trees knows that this tree is actually cursed. It's rotten from the root up. And the same is true of the temple. If you were to walk into the temple, you would have seen what appeared to be all the signs of life. You would have seen a lot of leafy activity. You would have seen animals being sacrificed, incense being burned, chanting, giving of money, sacrifices. But Jesus knows that what's going on in this temple only appears to be activity of life. As he surveys the temple the night before, he saw that the temple seemed to be healthy, but he knew that it was anything but. Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Now Jesus here is quoting the Old Testament, but he's quoting two different passages in one. He's combined them. The first quote is from Isaiah, the second from Jeremiah. Now the first quote is from where Isaiah is speaking of the Lord's desire to gather the nations in to worship Him. 
Now, this is only going to finally and fully happen on the final day. And it's already begun in the gospel. But even in the Old Testament, God has always desired for the nations to come worship him. You know, in the New Testament, we send missionaries out and we're evangelistic and we go to the nations. We go to the nations and tell them about the glory of God and we go and we tell them, calling them to worship God. But in the Old Testament, it was come and see. The temple was set up in such a way so that Gentiles could come and approach Yahweh and search for Yahweh and praise Yahweh. And that's what this Isaiah text is speaking about. But when Jesus saw the temple, he saw that the vision that God has in Isaiah is not being fulfilled. And we'll come back to that. So he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, where God is telling his people that they should be leading in the temple, they should be leading people towards holiness, but actually they've turned the temple into a cesspool for sin. You see, Jesus, what he finds in the temple is nothing new. If you go back and you read your Old Testament, you'll see that over and over again, the temple, the place where man is supposed to meet with God and be reconciled through sacrifice, it is over and over again abused. And it always becomes a place where people with authority abuse that authority and take advantage of their authority and they turn the temple into a place of sin. And so in this Jeremiah passage that Jesus is quoting, he's talking about how the temple has been turned into a den of thieves. You see, what's happening here is rather than making the temple a place where the Gentiles can come and find Yahweh, the religious leaders were making it difficult for those who didn't know God to find him. One of the things that was common was price gouging. Price gouging. People who were traveling to the temple, they couldn't most of the time bring their own animals for sacrifice, so they would bring money, especially if they were traveling from a long distance away. And they would bring money and they would buy animals in the temple to sacrifice. Well, the people who sold the animals in the temple, they recognized what a position they were in. And they often took advantage of the people who came. And they would double, triple, sometimes quadruple the price of a dove or a sheep or whatever animal was being purchased so that they could make excessive profit off of it. Jesus isn't concerned that there's money changers in the temple. Jesus isn't even concerned that people are selling doves in the temple. It was a very necessary thing. He's concerned with the way these transactions are taking place and the way that people in this position of power are using it and abusing it. A good example would be setting up a bookstall in the church, which we very well may do at some point, and selling books to the members of this church at cost. The Lord would be totally okay with that. We're not really trying to make a profit. If he did, it might be for ministry purposes, but... We're trying to give you good resources. We're using that as an opportunity to connect you closer to God through good books. But if we started doubling or tripling the price of books or started selling you books that corrupted your hearts and minds, the Lord would be very unpleased. It was a very sweet deal for these vendors. They held all of the power in their hands and they were taking advantage of it. So rather than using the temple as a place to help accommodate the nations in their pursuit of God and in their worship of God, these men were using the temple to make money. And the religious leaders, whose jobs it was to protect the temple, to preserve the purity of the temple, they were allowing these things to take place. They were encouraging these things to take place, and they were even profiting off of these abuses themselves. 
the temple of God had in every way turned into a den of thieves. Rather than serving as a bridge for the nations to get to God, the temple had become a barrier to the nations. And because of that, Jesus recognizes that the temple is cursed. Like the fig tree that's in leaf, that has the green leaves, it appears to be healthy, everything looks okay on the outside. Something has corrupted the temple at its very root. All the green, leafy religious activity doesn't mean anything because there's no spiritual fruit in the temple. It's cursed. Look at verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. The next morning, they passed by the same fig tree that Jesus had cursed. And they saw that Jesus' curse brought the inner reality of the tree to the outside. You see, this tree was already dying. But Jesus brought the truth of it out and made it visible for everyone to see in short order. You see, Jesus is going to do the same thing with the temple. And his cleansing of the temple is essentially cursing the temple. And in short order, he is going to bring the destructive inner realities of the temple out and make them visible to everyone. He's already begun to do it in this text. As a matter of fact, when it says that he's teaching them, it's probably best for us to understand this, that Jesus didn't just cleanse this temple one day. And he didn't just teach them one time. It wasn't like he flipped the tables and then gave a sermon. This was probably a progressive process. Jesus was probably continuously teaching them these things during his time in the temple. Jesus has already begun to reveal the fact that the temple is cursed. But one day, soon in the book of Mark, in fact, Jesus will finally bring the curse of the temple out into full vision for all. He'll do that when he gives his life as a ransom for sin. When he becomes the ultimate offering for sin. On that day, he will make the temple obsolete because there will be no need for sacrifice. As we read this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, we're prone to think about Jesus as kind of this temple reformer. right? He's kind of like Martin Luther or the iconoclast from the Reformation. Or maybe he's like Josiah, the great reformer king from the Old Testament, who when one of the priests rediscovered the book of the law, went in and had all of the idols from the temple cast out, destroyed, burned, and he went and he just did this great revival work in Israel. It's tempting to think of Jesus as this kind of reformer king here in the temple. But Jesus is not a temple reformer. Jesus is a temple destroyer. His work is not to reform the temple. His work is to replace the temple. If you have time, and you have time, maybe even this afternoon, I'd encourage you to read the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes about Jesus being the better sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the better priest, the final eternal priest, and the better temple, the final temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the temple promises and shadows 
So while it is upsetting that the temple is cursed, that it's diseased at, it, that it's diseased at its roots, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus isn't going to try to fix the temple. He's not going to try to clean the temple. He's going to abolish the temple and rebuild it in three days in his own flesh. And he is building the temple even now, brothers and sisters. We are living stones of God's temple being built onto the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And one day in heaven, his glory will reside in us as a body. In light of everything that we've kind of learned as we've gone through Jesus' triumphal entry and the cursing of the fig tree and the temple, in light of all that, now that we kind of understand that, I'd like to ask us a few questions. For the note takers, you can consider these the three points of the sermon. Three questions. Question number one. Are we confusing religious activity for spiritual fruit? Are we confusing religious activity for spiritual fruit? You see, the fig tree had leaves. It appeared to be healthy, but upon closer inspection, it became obvious that there was no life in the tree. The temple was full of spiritual activity. It had vendors, money changers, priests, sacrifices, prayer. But upon close inspection by Jesus, he saw that there was no life. There was no worship. As a matter of fact, in the temple, people believed that busyness equaled worship. And it's all too easy for us to assume the same thing. Being busy with spiritual activities, is not the same thing as worshiping God. It's all too easy for us to say, I teach a Bible study on Wednesday. I go to a women's gathering every other Saturday. I'm in church and I'm in Sunday school every single Sunday. I'm doing great spiritually. I have spiritual life. But as you read the pages of Scripture, think of something like 1 John or Ephesians 4 you don't really see busyness as a mark of spiritual health. You don't even see church gatherings as a mark of spiritual health. I think that's, in some sense you do, you should be regularly gathering with God's people. But going and doing things and being a part of things is not the same thing as being spiritually healthy. What do you see? I think if you read God's word and you look for evidences of grace, that you're growing up in the knowledge and holiness of His Son, Jesus Christ, you'll see things like a hunger for God's Word, an increasing hunger for God's Word. You'll see growth in the discipline of prayer. You'll see an increased desire to be around your brothers and sisters in Christ and be edified by their fellowship. You'll see a growth in the knowledge of grace in the Gospel. You'll see an increase in the fruits of the Spirit, love, peace, patience, kindness, etc., You'll see a growing love for God himself. God will become your treasure, increasingly so. Are you experiencing these things in your life? Or are you just busy with religious activities? Sometimes our religious activities are nothing more than substitutes for true spirituality. And you most easily see this with people when you stop and you say, hey, brother, hey, sister, how are you doing spiritually? 
And they respond by telling you what they're doing spiritually. We might be wrongly thinking that more time at Bible study groups equals greater holiness. And that's not true. Sometimes it just means that we're busy doing things that would lead people to believe that we're spiritually healthy. We have a lot of leafy activities, but like the tree, we are dead inside. This is one of the reasons, just one of the reasons, why this church doesn't ask you to be a part of 10,000 different things. We ask you to be here on Wednesday nights, and even that's somewhat optional. Make it if you can. We command you to be here on Sunday mornings, because that's what the Lord commands. But other than that, study at Michael Waugh's house, men's gathering, it's, it's not commanded of you because we recognize that doing things in the life of the church doesn't necessarily equal health in the life of the church. It's all too common for those who lead churches, in fact, to confuse busyness with fruitfulness. We think that the church is doing great if the number of ministries is growing and the number of people actively involved in ministries is going up. But you can have 15 ministries in the life of the church and none of them bearing any kind of spiritual fruit whatsoever. You can have an evangelism ministry that sees no converts. You can have small group ministries where people aren't growing in, you know, repentance, transparency, confession, grace. You can have Bible studies where people aren't growing in their knowledge and understanding of the gospel, where their thoughts aren't progressively being transformed into the thoughts of into God's thoughts by God's word. You can have accountability ministries where everyone's watching just as much porn as they used to and, you know, nobody's really confessing anything other than they're kind of obligatory every three weeks. Yeah, brother, I had a stumble kind of moment. Programs can be helpful, but they should never be viewed as an indicator of spiritual health in the life of the church. It's a false, feed, it's a false feedback mechanism or it can be. In any given church, there is probably not a lack of programs, activities, but there is often a lack of heart change. Some pastors, if you ask them how the church is doing, they respond with numbers and statistics. I feel that same temptation. A brother asked me, Sean, how are things going at 6th Avenue? And my, uh, my initial response is to say, well, when I got there, we had 17 members. Now we have 36 members. It's somewhat indicative, but why is my first reaction to talk about numbers? Or to say, hey, we passed a church covenant, a statement of faith, church constitution. Well, do, passing things like that doesn't necessarily equal spiritual health in the life of the church. Paul, as he is teaching the church in Corinth, about what the church should be like, about the kind of health they should be pursuing. He doesn't say anything about programs. He doesn't say anything about numbers. Rather, he says this. He says that we should see, quote, the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, which is just maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Paul's vision for spiritual health in the life of, of the church is people who can 
lovingly communicate truth to one another so that we can grow up into maturity, so that we look more like his son, Jesus Christ. I need to start responding more like that when people ask me how things are going at 6th Avenue. So how are you doing spiritually? How do you think this church is doing spiritually? You know, it's important that we're willing to ask ourselves these questions often. And it's more important that when we do ask ourselves these questions, both individually in our families and in this church, that we're prepared to give honest answers. Do we merely appear to be healthy or are we actually bearing fruit? Do we have a lot of green leaves? Is our root diseased? Tough questions. Question number two. How are we going to react to those who may point out the lack of fruit in our lives? <clears throat> you know, as Jesus talked about these things in the temple, the text tells us that it amazed the people and it terrified the religious leaders. Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. As you see, the text says that the religious leaders, in light of Jesus' teaching, in light of his pointing out the bad fruit of their religious activities, the religious leaders began to plot on his life, how they might destroy him. The leaders are threatened by Jesus as they're exposing his evil deeds. The text says that the people were astonished at his teaching. They felt the power slowly slipping out of their hands as Jesus is exposing their evil deeds to the light. Speaking of exposing deeds to the light, John chapter 3, verse 20 says this, For everyone who does evil hates the light. They hate the light and does not come to the light for fear that his evil deeds will be exposed. These religious leaders hate Jesus. Because he is the light. And the light has entered into the kingdom of God and into the shadowy parts of the temple and it is illuminating every corner. Including the religious leaders. And they hate him for it. They love their sin. They love their power. They love their authority. They love everything that they're able to do in this temple so much that they're willing to kill Jesus for pointing out their hypocrisy and for pointing out their sin. And the scary thing is most of us tend to react the same way. When people point out sin in our, our lives, we begin to shut our ears. Or we, we turn into lawyers and we begin to defend ourselves. Even if we're silent in our hearts, we're defending ourselves. We pretend to be listening. And then we begin to, we begin to hate the person who's telling us the truth about ourselves. Most of us tend to react this way. The religious leaders should be listening to Jesus, wrestling with whether or not what he's saying is true. And then if it is true, they should be plotting on how they can revitalize the temple, how they can clean the temple and make the temple holy again. But instead, they're hardening their hearts to him and they're plotting the king's death. Have you ever done this sort of thing? 
I don't mean plot someone's death. If you have plotted someone's death, Titus, come talk to me after the service. No, I mean, have you ever found yourself being confronted and hating the person who's confronting you? Have you ever found yourself just wanting to hurt the person who's telling you the truth about yourself? You don't have to want to kill them. You can just wish them evil in your hearts. You can hope that they get fired from their job. You can hope that their family falls apart. Maybe someone who tells you the truth about your sin, one day you see something bad happen to them and you say, see, not that high and holy, are you? You know, this response on our behalf, especially as Christians, it makes no logical sense. If a person comes to us in love and they point out our sins, they're trying to help us. They're trying to make us more holy. They're trying to help us be more like Jesus. And even if they aren't doing it for the right reasons, if it's true, it's still helping us. You know, when we, when we react and hate towards people who love us and tell us the truth, it's like a person being diagnosed with cancer, jumping up and punching their doctor in the face. You know, the doctor didn't give you the cancer. He's just, he's giving you a diagnosis. He's telling you the reality of your situation. You're not healthy. This sort of response is illogical, but it's common. Doctors can tell you about it. How often patients are angry with them for giving them a bad diagnosis. And as a pastor, I can tell you how often people get angry with you for giving them a bad diagnosis of their spiritual health. Pastors have been fired from churches because they go into a church and tell them, hey, things aren't that healthy here. And because people love their sin and they hate to be told the truth, they run the pastor out of town. The elders of this church are committed to telling the members of this church the truth about themselves and where they are spiritually in relation to the Lord. Not only that, but we're a congregational church. That means that we think the congregation has final authority on matters of who and what of the gospel, on the who and the what of the gospel, which means that we're training you up to speak the truth to one another in love, to point out each other's sin, to be honest with each other about where we stand spiritually. That means that there may be a time in the life of this church where an elder or another member comes up to you and tells you the truth about some bad spiritual fruit in your life, in your lives. As a matter of fact, it will probably definitely happen. If it doesn't happen, the elders are not doing a good job. So, how will you respond? When somebody says, hey, you seem to have a lot of leafy stuff going on in your life, but I'm concerned. I don't really see a lot of fruit. How will you respond? Will you hate the brother who tells you? Will you make it awkward every time he sees you in Sunday school or on a Wednesday night? Will you stop praying for him? Will you wish them evil in your heart? Will you run from your sin? Or will you thank God for making you a part of his church where people are committed to helping you avoid self-deception, where people will be honest with you even when it's really, really hard and tell you the truth about what may be going wrong with you in your life spiritually? Will you perceive the person telling you the truth as an enemy or as a friend? 
Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted. And another proverb says, An open rebuke is better than hidden love. Question number three. Have we considered what awaits us if we fail to bear fruit? Have we considered what awaits us if we fail to bear fruit? The diseased fig tree was cursed by Jesus. And eventually, the temple was destroyed. Speaking of that destruction, in the Lucan account of the entry into Jerusalem, we have Jesus recorded as saying this, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus came to Jerusalem and to the temple telling the people the truth. And they hated him for it, they rejected him for it, and they killed him for it. And the result was God's judgment, so severe that not one stone was left on top of another. What does it mean for us if we only appear to be spiritual? I think it means that we will incur the same truth, the same curse. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist says this to the religious leaders, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then a breath later he says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is still laid at the root, brothers and sisters. If any tree is found by Jesus to be in leaf, but to have no fruit, it will be cursed, it will be cut down, and it will be thrown into the fire of God's judgment. Will that be you? Will that be you? Will you live your whole life in busy Religious activities that only appear to be godly? Only to find out on the last day that you have been uprooted by your master's axe and thrown into the fire? Will that be you? If there's ever a time for you to be honest with yourself about the fruit of your spiritual life, now is the time. If there's ever been a time for you to ask yourself if you really believe the gospel, now is the time. Examine your life. Do you really believe this? Or are you just playing games? Are you just coming to church every Sunday because this is something to do, because this is what we do in the South, in Decatur, Alabama? This is my community. This is where I know people. None of that is going to matter when we die. And we will die. And some of us will be cursed. Will that be you? As you listen to me say these things, do you feel like I'm challenging you? Or I'm attacking you? If so, why do you think you feel that way? 
Do you hate me for asking you to consider the state of your soul? Are you ignoring me? If your spirit burns within you, you should know that it's because the fire of God's word is convicting you. And the burn is a severe kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey. Remember, kings would ride donkeys in times of peace. But they also ride war horses when it's time to step into the fray of battle. One day Jesus will come back. And when he does, he will be mounted on a magnificent white war horse. And he will begin the great judgment. And the slaughtered lamb will take the form of a lion. And the king will bring judgment on all the earth. Revelation chapter 19 reads like this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. How will this righteous king find you? How will he find this church? If Jesus comes back today, will he have reason to fashion a whip and start lashing the elders of this church and flip this pulpit over? Or will he find us faithful? Will he find us bearing fruit? I think it's worth at least considering these questions in light of the judge and the king who may curse us and make war on us if he finds us without fruit. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are a good God and that you do justice. And we know that your son is a righteous and just king. And so we humble ourselves before his throne this morning and we ask him to exercise his full rule and reign in our lives, both individually and as a church. And we pray that as we continue to grow, that we would not lose our humility before our great King. And we pray that you would give us the ability by the power of your Holy Spirit to bear much fruit for the glory of your name. Amen.